You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our great God, you truly are great. You are great in the way that you deal with your people and your plan and your purpose for us. The blessings that you have given to those who are yours is beyond description, and not the least of which of those blessings is your word, and we are thankful for it, and we are thankful for what you reveal about yourself uh, to us through your word. It is our desire to have understanding in your word, and we pray for your blessing upon our time of study here, that you would be glorified in and through your people as we obey your word. We gladly own you as our God and our King. We pray, our great, blessed, triune God, that you would send the Spirit to be our teacher and our guide today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to the book of John in the 10th chapter, John chapter 10. We're going to be finishing up the 10th chapter of John today, looking at verses 37 through the end of the chapter. In order to catch a bit of the context, we're going to read together beginning at verse 30 through the end of the chapter. Verse 30 of John 10, Jesus said to the unbelieving Pharisees who were not of his sheep, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Now we're going to be finishing up the 10th chapter of John, as I said, and for those of you who may not have been here last week, uh, we ended right in the middle of Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' charge that he was a blasphemer. And we looked at Psalm 82, and to just quickly recap, because you need to have this in your mind to sort of understand the rest of this passage, in Psalm 82, uh, the Lord refers back to Psalm 82 in order to show that the Pharisees' reaction to him calling himself God was unjustified. Jesus had said, I and the Father are one, and that was a, a claim to be fully God, to be one in nature, one in essence, one in power, one in purpose, one in being with the Father. And they understood exactly what he was claiming to be and who he was claiming to be, which is why they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, for which of my works are you stoning me? Is it for a good work? And they said, no, not for a work, but because you, it's for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. So they understood what his claim was. And then Jesus cited Psalm 82 to show them that their reaction to his, his statement of divinity was unjustified, and their desire to stone him was unjustified. Back in Psalm 82, this is the essence of it. In Psalm 82, the psalmist calls men who were mere judges, the psalmist calls them gods because they functioned as in the place of God in some respects, in the capacity and by function, they were kind of like gods to the people. 
So Jesus' argument is one from the lesser to the greater, and he essentially says this. The psalmist calls mere men who are unworthy of that title, the psalmist calls them gods. If the psalmist calls those mere wicked men gods, and you don't charge the psalmist with blasphemy, and they are unworthy men who are unworthy of that title, but they have that title because of their function, how much more do I deserve that title, I who am not just a God-like in function, but God by nature? Jesus is the one who is sent by the Father, sanctified by the Father, who eternally existed, pre-existed before He came into this world. He is by nature God. So if it's not blasphemy for the men who function as gods to be called gods, in that sense, how is it blasphemy for me, who really am God, to be called gods? And that was intended to show them that their reaction to His claim was unjustified. They were harshly overreacting to it, and Jesus is saying, I am God by nature, I am God by calling, I am God, and I can use that title of myself. So he didn't back down. He didn't try to appease the Jews. He didn't try to explain away any kind of misunderstanding because there was no misunderstanding. They understood exactly what it was that he was claiming to do, so or claiming to be. So last week we looked at his appeal to the Old Testament Scripture. We looked at his argument from the lesser to the greater. And then today in verses 37 and 38, we're looking at his appeal to his works. And before we jump into verse 37, there is something that I intentionally skipped over last week, and I want to return to it for just a second. And I skipped over it so that we wouldn't kind of get down a rabbit trail away from what I was trying to communicate as the central idea of Jesus' appeal to Psalm 82. What is interesting to note in this passage is what Jesus says about the Old Testament Scripture and how he treats it. Uh, Jesus argues from one single word in a rather obscure verse in a rather obscure psalm. And that is Jesus' view of the Old Testament. For him, every word was important. Every passage was significant. Every passage was inerrant. It was truthful. It was God's Word. And it was authoritative. And he appeals to the Scripture as that which answers the argument. If there is an argument to be had, it is his appeal to the Word of God. And it shows us the esteem in which Jesus held the Old Testament Scriptures. And not only that, but he says in verse 30, uh, 35, The Scripture cannot be broken. Verse 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. The word broken means to be emptied of its power or its significance or to be proved in error or to be proved wrong. That's Jesus' view of the Old Testament text. If it is written, it's infallible. It cannot be proved to be wrong. It cannot be proved to be an error. In fact, everything must be judged under the standard of that word because nothing can prove God's word to be erroneous. Now, either Jesus is right in his view of the Old Testament text or he is wrong in his view of the Old Testament text. I'm banking on the fact that he was right in his view of the Old Testament text, which means that the Word of God cannot be proved to be wrong in any measure or in any way. Now I point this out because we need to keep in mind that no matter what man discovers in terms of science or archaeology or history or human philosophy or human reasoning or rationalism or wisdom or anything, if it appears to contradict with Scripture... It is not Scripture which must be questioned. It is the discovery of man or the thinking of man which must be questioned. And this is odd, obviously, among unbelievers, but interestingly enough and sadly enough, there are many Christians who view Scripture that same way. If we come up or we discover something that seems to put Scripture in error, the knee-jerk reaction is for Christians to come up with a way to try and explain the Scripture to accord with or to agree with some scientific discovery. For instance, the age of the universe. Scientists tell us the universe is 15 billion years old. 15 billion years old. How do they know this? Were any of them there? 
Did they discover a calendar, a clock on the backside of the moon that we were unaware of until now, 15 billion years old? What did they observe? You know why they say 15 billion years old? Because they need 15 billion years for their theory of evolution to work. They begin with the assumption, the presupposition, that we need a long period of time for our theory to work. Therefore, we have to interpret all of the evidence in light of our presupposition to get our theory to work. So we come up with 15 billion years. Because if you tell somebody that a frog became a prince and they did it overnight, they go, <laughs> nice fairy tale, that's good. Children believe that stuff. But if you say 15 billion years, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 15 billion years, I guess, given enough time, anything's possible, right? When I was in high school, you know how old the universe was? Five billion years old. 25 years... In 25 years' time, I have added 25 years to my age. The universe has added 10 billion years to its age. 10 billion years. So that means they were only off by 200% when I was in high school. But you can trust them to get the age of the universe right. You can rely upon them. Sure you can. We don't know who shot JFK, but they can tell us what happened 250 million years ago. We have the assassination of JFK on film, and we don't know what happened. But they know what happened 250 million years ago because they dug up some bone. It's absurd. Anytime we discover anything in terms of archaeology or history or science or anything like that, we always begin with the presupposition that God's Word tells us the truth. It cannot be broken. It cannot be proved wrong. So if what we discover or what we think contradicts Scripture, the problem is with us. Our understanding, our discovery, our knowledge base, something with us must be questioned. So we don't take the world around us, what we observe as the starting place, and then interpret Scripture in light of that. We use Scripture as our starting place, and we understand the world out there in light of the truth of God's Word. That's the only way we can do it. That is Jesus' view of the Word of God. It cannot be broken. It is true. And if anybody says anything that contradicts it, there's something wrong with them. Never with Scripture. Never with Scripture. Always keep that in mind. Now, Jesus' appeal to His works. Look at verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. This is a rather straightforward proposition that He is suggesting to them. He is appealing to his works, and by works he means signs, the miracles that he did. If I do not do the signs or the miracles of my Father, and notice who the source of those miracles and those signs is, it is the Father who did the works through Jesus. So Jesus could speak of his works, his miracles being the works of the Father, because all he did was the works of the Father. The Father was working through him, and he was doing the works, but it was the Father through him. So Jesus could speak of his miracles as being his miracles or as the Father's miracles. His works or as the Father's works. If I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. In other words, if the miracles that I do are the miracles that only God can do, then believe what I am saying. If the miracles that I do are not the works that only God can do, then do not believe what I am saying. The evidence of his claims was the works that he did. The works gave evidence to his words. Now, what miracles is Jesus speaking of? John doesn't record all of the signs that Jesus did, but in John chapter 2, he mentions many signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem, and he says many people believed in him because of the, because of the signs. Then you have another deed done in Jerusalem, John chapter 5, the healing of the man lame at the pool of Bethesda. He'd been lame for 38 years, and he stood up, and Jesus said, take up your pallet and walk. The man stood up and he walked, having been lame and unable to walk or work for 38 years. And then the man born blind. The man born blind is another example of a miracle done right in Jerusalem. And they had interviewed that man. You remember, they interviewed his parents. They examined the miracle. They heard the testimony. And there's no way that they could refute or explain the miracle away. So they were aware of all of these miracles, and they had seen not just one miracle, but many miracles. Because Jesus said, I have shown you many signs from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? 
So it's not like he had done one parlor trick and expected them to believe. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle, and it wasn't just the number of miracles that was daunting. It was the nature of the miracles. When in the history of the world has a man who has been lame for 38 years stood up and walked at the command of a passerby? When has that happened? Do you remember what the man born blind says? Has it ever been in the history of the world that a man born blind has been made to see? It's not just the, the number of the miracles, it was the scope, the scale of these miracles. These were enormous God-sized miracles. And the Jews were without excuse for not observing the miracles and saying, there is nobody who can do this except God Himself. That was the only rational, rational, reasonable conclusion that they could come to. Nobody can do signs that this man does except for God himself. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can make lame men walk. Only God can make the blind to see. These are the signs and the miracles, not of an average prophet. These are not Elijah, Elisha type miracles. These, these miracles, the nature of them, the number of them, the scope of them, these are the miracles that only God could do. And they should have been able to come to the conclusion just by looking at the miracles that he did, that he was not blaspheming when he called himself one with the Father. That was the evidence. He could call himself God, and they should have looked at the miracles and said, that's not blasphemy. He has to be God. To do those kind of miracles, this man has to be God. So here's the simple proposition that he offers them. If the signs that I do are works that only God can do, then you must believe me. But look at the end of, or look at the end of verse 37, beginning of verse 38. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. The signs that I do bear witness to me. Jesus gave the same argument in John chapter 5, verse 36, when he said to the Jews there, after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So it wasn't just his words which he gave them, he pointed to his works. Look at what I do. This is the evidence that what I say is true. And they saw the miracles. And they were without excuse for not concluding that these were the works of God. So Jesus' proposition, if I don't do the works, don't believe me. But if I do do the works of my Father, if the miracles that I do are genuinely God-wrought miracles, then you ought to come to the conclusion that the Father is in me and I in the world. And when Jesus says, if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, verse 38. That's kind of a curious way of phrasing it. If you do not believe me, believe the works. Jesus is not excusing their unbelief in him. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, look, I understand that you don't believe in me, and that's okay. So if you're not going to believe me, fine. But believe the miracles. That's not what he's saying. He is saying this. You're not willing to accept me at my bare word. In other words, a Galilean carpenter from a poor, poor Jewish family in Nazareth, a Nazarene, a Nazarene, comes and he claims to be God. You wouldn't expect that the Jews would accept every pretender to the throne, every messianic claim, everybody who claims to be God, and just say, well, he's a poor Jewish carpenter from a poor family up in Nazareth. He says he's God, he must be God. That would be to accept him at his bare word. And Jesus is saying, if you're not going to believe my bare word, which they didn't, and we might not even in some ways expect them to accept him at his bare word, they ought to be able to look at the miracles and saying these are not the ordinary workings of a man who is just the son of a Jewish carpenter. So if you're not going to believe my words, believe my works. If you won't accept the evidence of just my words, look at my words and accept the evidence of what I do and believe in the works. And you ought to be able to look at the works and say the Father is in Him and He is in the Father. And that, by the way, at the end of verse 38 
is the statement of oneness. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that's what he is saying. There is an inseparable unity of person and... uh, Not person, sorry. There is an inseparable unity of being and substance between the Father and the Son. They are separate and distinct persons, but an essential unity, so that the Father is in the Son. The Father is not the Son. They are not the same person. But the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. That is the oneness that Jesus describes in verse 30. And they should have looked at the works, the miracles, and said, he's right. He has to be one with the Father if he does those miracles. So that's the case that Jesus lays out. He appeals to the Old Testament passage. He gives them an argument from the lesser to the greater, and then he appeals to his works. Look at what I have done. These bear evidence that what I'm telling you is the truth, that I am a man sent from God, sent and sanctified by the Father. So if you're not going to believe my bare testimony, believe at least the works that I do, because they bear witness of me. And what did the Jews do in response to that? They fell down on their knees and they said, you're right, the evidence is overwhelming. We are convinced. We have seen your signs. We have seen your works. We have looked at all of this. We have examined the man born blind. We can't come to any other conclusion than that you are God in human flesh. Is that what they did? Verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. This is the same murderous intention that they have had from chapter 7, verse 1. Actually, chapter 5, verse 18. But it has kind of come to a full expression beginning in chapter 7 when they were constantly trying to seize him. Now, verse 39 is one of those verses in John's Gospel that begs for a little bit more clarity and detail. And I wish I wish I could go back in time and tell, ask John, what exactly happened here? How did he elude their grasp? Was it a supernatural thing like when he hid himself from them at the end of chapter 8 when they picked up stones to stone him at the end of chapter 8 in the temple and Jesus hid himself and walked out in their midst? Did he supernaturally blind them in some way like he did at the end of the 8th chapter? Or was it just a, a natural thing as they just walked away and batted their hands off and, and walked out of the temple? Is there some miracle going on here? But it just says that he eluded their grasp. Ultimately, we don't know if this is a miraculous deliverance, but we do know that it was a purposeful deliverance because Jesus would not die by stoning in Solomon's portico at the Feast of Dedication. Jesus himself was in control of his own death. Remember that? He said in chapter 10, I lay down my own life. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. It's my own initiative. I lay down my life. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from the Father. So Jesus knew and everybody, well, not everybody knew. Jesus knew and the Father knew that it was not God's intention for the Son to die in Solomon's portico by stoning. It was the Father's intention for the Son to die at the Passover by crucifixion three months later. And until that time, there is no amount of murderous rage that is going to endanger Jesus because he is sovereign over the timing of his death the nature of his death, the place of his death, everything about his death. He is the sovereign king over all of that. He would give up his life on his own timetable, in his own means, in his own way, by his decree, not by anybody else's decree. So he eluded their grasp and he slipped out. And he walked away. And verse 40 is more, verses 40 and 42, by the way, is more than just a time marker to mark time or to tell us about a sort of the travel plan that Jesus had. There's something significant here. Verse 40, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. Now this is Jesus leaving Jerusalem. The religious leaders have tried to seize him one more time and he eluded their grasp. And now Jesus leaves Jerusalem. And as far as we know from the Gospel of John and as far as we know from any of the other Gospels, the next time that Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it will be to die on a cross. He's not going to return back to the city of Jerusalem. He walked out of the city of Jerusalem. He went off into the region known as Perea. And this is the end of his ministry in Jerusalem. So now Jesus is out in the wilderness where John was first baptizing. And he stayed there. John doesn't tell us for how long. But the very next time marker in John's gospel is at 11 verse 55 
where it mentions that the Passover was near. And that's sort of grouped in with the resurrection of Lazarus, which is chapter 11. So there's a few months' time between the Feast of Dedication. He leaves in verse 40. It's in December. He comes back 1155 around the next Passover, which is three or four months later. And we'll talk next week about what happens during those three or four months. So Jesus left Jerusalem, and now he's gone for three to four months out in the wilderness where John was first baptizing. That's why John says, again, Jesus went again out into the wilderness. Because John has already told us about a couple of encounters that Jesus had with John the Baptist back in the beginning of the gospel. So now Jesus is returning back to where John the Baptist was out preaching and teaching, and it says that he stayed there. Look at verse 41. Many came to him there and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. So Jesus was far enough out in the wilderness that he was away from the religious center of the nation, away from the Jews and the Pharisees and all of those who were hostile to him. But he was not so far out away from people that they couldn't seek him out and go find him, which many of them did. So many of them from around that region came and witnessed him, maybe saw his signs, listened to his teaching, and they came to the conclusion that everything John said about this man was true. So these are people who lived out in the regions around where John the Baptist was first baptizing. Now I want you to put yourself back in the mind of those folks for a period of time. Those folks are ones who came out of the surrounding regions to hear John preach. We read in the Gospels and even at the beginning of of this Gospel that many gathered around John. Remember, he was a celebrity of sorts. Everybody came out to hear John and to listen to what he was saying and to hear his preaching. Here was a guy who was dressed weird, he ate weird things, and he was saying weird things and baptizing people out in the middle of the wilderness, saying that, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He must increase, I must decrease. I am content to play second fiddle. Though he came before uh, after me, he existed before me. I am not worthy of him. This is the one who takes away the sin of the world, pointing all to Christ baptizing people in repentance, saying, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now all these people from that region had heard John's preaching. They heard what he was saying about Jesus. And now Jesus has arrived back in their region, and they go out to see him, and they remember the preaching of John the Baptist, and they say, though John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man were true. That phrase, everything he said about this man is true, wouldn't you like to have that engraved on your tombstone as a true statement? John the Baptist is a great example in that way. If I could get to the end of my life and have it be said of me honestly, everything he said about Christ was true. I would be content with that. I would be happy with that. That's a great statement to have on your tombstone. That's the mark of a faithful witness, by the way. That's the mark of a faithful testimony to Christ. Just to speak the truth about Christ. John was one who, he didn't perform any signs. Was he a celebrity? Was he well-known? He was. He was a prophet, yes. But he was nothing compared to Jesus. He was secondary to Jesus. John was content to just simply testify and to speak the truth about Christ and to say to these people, this is the one you should believe in. Some of John's disciples left John and went to follow Jesus. Do you remember that? Because he pointed everybody to Christ. That's the mark of a faithful pastor. It's the mark of a faithful Sunday school teacher. It's the mark of a faithful housewife who day after day, week after week, simply points her kids and her family to Christ and everything she says about him is true. It's the mark of a faithful employee or employer or a neighbor who just simply says everything about Christ and what they say about him is true, just to bear simple testimony. The mark of a great man or a woman of God is not that they do signs, not that they speak in unintelligible language, not that they have erratic emotional experiences. The mark of a great man or woman of God, the mark of the presence of the Spirit of God is that they bear testimony to Christ and that everything they say about him is true. 
And that ought to be something that all of us strive for, just to faithfully bear witness to him in all of life's circumstances and have it be said of us, everything he said about that man, Jesus Christ, was true. John is a faithful man. Now, these people had heard John preach. Then they saw Jesus. And what was the response? What was the result of that? Verse 42, many believed in him there. Many of them believed in him. Now, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've had to ask ourselves, what kind of belief is John talking about? Because we have seen that John describes fake belief or false belief, and we have seen that John describes true belief. In John chapter 2, there were many who believed in him because of the miracles, but Jesus didn't commit himself to any of them because he knew what was in man. He knew that their belief was a false belief, a fake belief. In John chapter 6, we saw many who believed in him tried to make him king because Jesus fed them free food. But when Jesus began to teach them the hard things concerning the gospel and himself, they walked away and walked with him no more, John 6:66. We saw fake believers in John chapter 8 who, although it says they believe, Jesus said to them, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? Freedom. We've never been a slave to anybody. That's offensive to us. And Jesus went on to describe them as children of the devil in bondage to sin and to darkness. And these people who it says in John 8, quote unquote, believed in him later in that very same chapter tried to stone him. Those are fake believers. So in John's gospel, what type of belief is this at the end of John chapter 10? The people in Perea out away from the city of Jerusalem. Is this true belief or is this fake belief? John doesn't say explicitly, but we are left to judge from the context. Let me suggest to you that if these people embrace the testimony of John the Baptist, who said that Jesus is the light, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he is the Messiah, that he pre-existed before he came into this world, that he is in fact the Lord whom he came to prepare the way for, if those people listened to what John said and said, that's true, we have come to the same conclusion about Jesus that John the Baptist came to, if that's their conclusion, then this is genuine, true, saving faith. And here's the irony of it. Jesus had just left, and here's the contrast we were intended to see. Jesus had just left the the religious center of the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, where the experts in the law and the experts in the Old Testament scripture rejected him, were hostile to him, hated him, and tried to kill him. And he goes out into the wilderness to a bunch of sheep, the hoi polloi, the common folks, the ranchers, the farmers, the shepherds. And what was their reaction? They believed in him. It wasn't the intellectuals. It wasn't the intelligentsia. It wasn't the elite in Jerusalem that believed in him. Who was it? It was the insignificant out in the countryside that believed in him. Listen, this is exactly what I would expect is true, given what Jesus said. When he, when he prayed to the Father, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the, uh, the wise and the prudent, and you have revealed them to babes. You know what Jesus is saying? It is not God's intention to reveal spiritual truth to the intelligentsia and to the elite and to the gifted and to the intellectuals. That's not the way God does things. You know what he chooses instead? The foolish things, things like you, things like me, or to shame the wise. I heard recently about a study that was done of religious and non-religious people. And so they judged these uh, study, the study group that they did, and they found that non-religious people were smarter, more intellectual, and had higher IQs than religious people. Does that offend you? It's actually what I would expect. Not that I think you're stupid, but I'll tell you why. Here's why. You take a bunch of worldly people with worldly standards judging worldly wisdom, and who do you think is going to come out on top? Worldly people. And they're going to evaluate the people of God in terms of all of their worldly standards and their worldly understanding and say, it's the worldly people who are the smartest. Oh yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has not chosen to use the things that are worldly wise and the things that are great in the eyes of men. 
God has chosen to use the simple and the insignificant and the small and the quote-unquote foolish things of this world to shame those things which are wise. So God does not reveal his truth to the intellectuals. You know who he reveals it to? The simpletons like me. And it is by his grace that he hides these things from some and reveals them to others. And God does this for his own glory so that no man can boast in his flesh and say, I have believed because I am smarter and I saw the truth. No, it's the simple people who believe. That's the intended contrast here. It wasn't the intellectuals in Jerusalem who believed. They rejected him. It was the people on the countryside, the simple and the the unwise in the eyes of the world that God chose to reveal the spiritual truth to. Now, one last thing that you and I learned from this section, this, this passage of Scripture. Man in his sin will go to almost any length to remain in his sin and his love for darkness. The problem with these men who rejected him in Jerusalem and tried to seize him was not that they did not have the evidence. That's the whole point of John 10. They had plenty of evidence. They had more evidence than, than you and I have. They had more evidence. They saw a brighter light. It was clear. It was right in front of them. They saw all of this with their own eyes and beheld him and touched him and heard his words. They had plenty of evidence, but the problem was not the lack of evidence. The problem was what Jesus revealed back in chapter 3. Men love darkness rather than light, and they will not come to the light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come to the light unless their deeds be exposed. They don't want to be exposed as evil deeds, evildoers. And so they have this unconditional agape love for spiritual darkness, and they will not let go of that. And the problem is not that they did not have enough evidence. They had sufficient evidence. They had sufficient light. And they rejected it. And here's what you ought to remember, Christian. Apart from the grace of God, you would, have, you would remain just as bound in your sin and just as in love with your darkness and just as committed to an irrational unbelief as any unbeliever that you read about in the Gospel of John. God, by His grace, opened your eyes. God, by His grace, set you free. God, by His grace, did that as a gift to you for His eternal glory and according to His purposes. It has nothing to do with your intellect. It has nothing to do with your upbringing. It is the gift of God entirely. And apart from that grace, you would have rejected even more light than these Jews rejected. And you would have been irrationally bound in your sin and your unbelief. Loving darkness. Apart from the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that our salvation is entirely of You. For if You had left it up to us to to work out these things and to embrace You, we never would have done that. We would have been just as blinded by our self-righteousness and our pride as any of the unbelievers that we read about in John's Gospel. But we thank You that You have delivered us from darkness and translated us to the kingdom of Your dear Son, that You have set us free from our sin, that You have opened our eyes and allowed us to see how truly spiritually blind we were. And then you have made known to us the spiritual riches of your kingdom and your word, all by your grace. For that we thank you, we give you our praise, and we gladly bow our knee before you. You are our great God, and we owe you everything. And we thank you for all of these things, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.